Would you take your Bible this morning and turn in it to 1 John? 1 John, we've been walking through this epistle, the first letter of John, or 1 John, and we've been saying all along that the theme is really, there's a number of them, but I think the overarching one is found in 1 John 5.13, where John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote, that we would know that we'd have eternal life. In fact, if you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, there he says, and we are writing these things, he says there, so that our joy may be made complete. I mean, there's just no way that you could have joy without the assurance of your salvation. And so we've picked up this book and are walking through it. Let me read for you our text as we begin, beginning in 1 John 1, 5, and then we'll pay particular attention to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 this morning. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Assurance wrote... Puritan Thomas Brooks, he put it in that older English phrasing, but here's what he said on assurance. He said, is a reflex act of a gracious soul whereby he clearly and evidently sees himself in a gracious, blessed, and happy state. It is a sensible feeling an experiential discerning of a man's being in a state of grace. He went on to say that assurance is a believer's ark where he sits, Noah-like, quiet and still, in the midst of all the distractions and destructions and confusions. Interesting statement there. I like how he said that, where he sits Noah-like, quiet and still. I mean, assurance as we know it causes us to say with the hymn writer who has not sung this song, blessed, what? Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Blessed assurance. But sadly, Brooks goes on to say that assurance is a pearl that most wants but a crown that few wear. Little well-grounded assurance is to be found among, he said, most Christians. Most Christians 
Brooks said, live between fears and hopes and hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. Sometimes they hope that their state is good. At other times, they fear that their state is bad. Now they hope that all is well. And, and then he says, and that it shall go well with them forever. Shortly they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such corruption or by the onslaught of such and such temptation. And so they are like a ship in the storm, tossed here and there, end of quotes. Is that how you look at assurance? Interesting the way he says it, that they live between fears and hopes, okay? And hang, as it were, between heaven and hell. I mean, what do you do with sin, and can sin destroy us altogether? I mean, the truth of the Scripture is that as much as we love God, as much as you would desire to obey God, the truth is we fail. And we find ourselves in the battle that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 7. You remember when he said that in Romans 7.15? He said, "...for I do not understand my own actions." For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I, what? Hate. Verse 18, he said, I have the desire to do, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He went on to say in verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And maybe you feel that way. I have usually weekly, right? The very thing we want to do, we find ourselves not doing. I mean, how many of you this morning would desire to love God more fully? How many of you even this morning would desire to obey Him more faithfully? You see, and most of our hearts, I'm sure, would say, yeah, that, that's me. But it's then sometimes that we can lose the assurance of our salvation. We seek to please Him, but we fall short. And so the question then is, for a believer, what do we do with sin? And when we sin, can we still have assurance? Or can we lose our salvation altogether? Somebody in this flock told me that when he was a little boy, he went into the Sunday school. And here's how the Sunday school class teacher instructed him. A picture was drawn of the heart. And that heart then was pure, it was white. And then black dots were placed on the heart representing our sin. Eventually, the heart was eclipsed by black dots with the result that the individual had lost his, what? Salvation. That's how he was taught. Brought up on fear. And actually what I would say is, that's horrible, is it not? I mean, I just, when he told me that story, I kind of cringed because my heart would be black. And I would fear the rest of my life if it was getting blacker by the moment. It's, it's awful. But there's hope this morning 
in 1 John because he writes so that you would know, 1 John 5, 13, that you have eternal life. No other book in the New Testament speaks of the believer's assurance as explicitly as does 1 John. Now, John begins here in chapter 1 with the necessity to believe in verses 1 through 4, the work of Christ. You remember what he said there. He said that we have seen and heard and proclaimed to you, verse 3, so that you may have fellowship with us. It begins there with the life of Christ. I would say to us as we walk through that section, assurance begins here. And begins with a proper understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. Then John launched into verse 5 and he proclaimed God is light. And it is that description of God as light from 1-5 that follows down through 2-2. And that description undergirds everything else in this section. And what John is going to do is test the claims of those who say they're in fellowship with God to see if their lifestyle is consistent with their profession. Now, what he does, and we've been tracking this, he provides three negative examples of what fellowship does not look like, and then three positive examples of what true fellowship is. And what he does within these three arguments is he states the error, kind of smokes out the heresy, then he provides the remedy for fellowship with God. Now, I think you have your notes there in the bulletin. I believe we included those. You can see there the... Do you guys have those? Yeah, you see that we've been looking at true fellowship with God. First is put in, and I just stated it positively, walking in the light. And there he denounces the heresy if we walk in darkness. But the truth declared is that we've got to walk towards the light, live in obedience to Him. And the result described was that we experience in verse 7 that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we said the closer we get to the light, the more we recognize that his blood, as Andy presented this morning, has covered and forgiven all of our sins. But we, not, we, not, we noted not only that true fellowship is walking in the light, but true fellowship with God is confessing our sin. We noted in verse 8 that the heresy denounced is that if we say, if we have no sin, and there were some claiming that they were living in sinless perfection. And here in verse 8, they were claiming they had no sin nature. You say, well, how could they deny that? They elevated knowledge. And so they made knowledge supreme. And if you had come to a place of enlightenment, they thought that they had no longer any sin in their nature. And that is heresy because he says here, we deceive ourselves, verse 8, the truth is not in us. And then he described again, what true fellowship is in verse 9 is to confess our sin. And if we confess our sin, he's going to forgive us our sin. Now, we left off last week at this third positive mark that true fellowship with God is recognizing our sin. In other words, we've got to recognize that we have sinned because he says here the heresies, if we say we have no sin, that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. And then we look here this morning at B, the truth declared. Pick up the text with me in 2.1. John says, my little children. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
You'll, you'll note that opening phrase here in this expression of the truth declared. John says, my little children. He says it seven different times in this letter alone. And again, I want you to see John as this aged, wise man. He's in his 90s. He was with the Lord Jesus Christ for many years of his life, and now he's lived 60-some years beyond his death by crucifixion. And he's writing now this letter, and he says, my little children. And the only way I can take that is he writes with a deep, deep intimacy and pastoral concern for this flock. And what he says to us by the Spirit of God this morning, look again at 2.1. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And the thought there is that John does not want us this is the best way to say it in the language, to ever commit even one act of sin. He says, I'm writing that you would not commit one act of sin. But if you go on and look at it, he says, but if, but he says there, he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I think he writes this because maybe some have misunderstood verse 8 where it says if we say we have no sin, then we're deceiving ourselves. And then he goes on to say that the blood of Jesus can, you know, cleanses us from all sin. I mean, some might argue this way. Has he not argued that all men sin? Has John not argued that sin is inevitable? And would he not agree that if you're to confess your sin daily, it could be that some then were thinking then, why struggle against it? I mean, if you're going to just sin daily and the blood of Jesus, his son, is cleansing you from past, present, and future sin, then why struggle against it? I mean, just resign yourself to the fact. Has John not said that there's forgiveness for sin through what Jesus has done? I mean, why worry about sin if God already has forgiven you? Look what he says there, though. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, okay? Obviously, this is the teaching of Scripture. We're not just to coast in our holiness. We're to not sin. It could be that what John is getting at, possibly, is it could be an exhortation to those who are so perfectionistic by nature and feel that though everything is lost, including their salvation. And the question that would come to us from verse 5 is, on what basis can we approach God who is light in the face of our sin? Well, praise the Lord, John will tell us that we are not left to our own efforts. Look what he says there in 2.1. He says, but if anyone does sin, okay? He creates a contrast there. The thought is if anyone does sin, and it's implied that we will sin, we are to confess our sin knowing, look what he says in 2.1, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In fact, it's interesting because nowhere in the scripture will you find a place of sinless perfection achieved in this life. Nowhere. 
You can search from Genesis to Revelation. It's never going to say that we've reached that status. If someone says that, you will find that someone has redefined what sin is. He says, but when we sin, we have an advocate. Now, what John's getting at here is he, he kind of takes us, if, if you can picture this, into a legal setting. John takes us into a courtroom, and in that court, if you will, God is the judge, okay? And he says, as we enter into that courtroom, John is saying that we have an advocate on our side. We have someone, if you will, in our legal corner. Now, to explain this truth that he declares, John uses three names for Christ to describe this truth when we sin. And it's a very important message today, okay? First, he says that Jesus is our advocate. He's our advocate. Then he's going to state his name as Jesus Christ. Then thirdly, he's going to state his name as righteous. But you see it there in 2.1. We have an advocate. That word just simply in the language is parakletos. You've probably seen or heard that term before. An advocate is one who is called alongside of another to help someone, especially in a court of law. You might recognize that term advocate because it's the same word used in the Gospels to speak of who? To speak of the Holy Spirit, John 14, verse 16, verse 26. The Holy Spirit is said to be our advocate. Here in 1 John, what he is saying is that Jesus Christ, in a legal setting, is our advocate with the Father. And so in this setting, an advocate described a counselor who comes to the aid of a client who is accused of something. I had to do that just recently. I had to go in the court of law for, that was kind of funny, for, it was not really funny, but it was for a friend of mine. He's a police officer, and um, he did something on the job where, um, it'd probably be best to say that he did a, he did a prank wasn't anything ethical. It wasn't anything immoral. He did something with a few officers that wasn't wise. So he said, Scott, do you think you could come in and give a character reference for me? And I said, sure. So I had to go into this court, okay? I won't say what city because I'm sure this tape will get to those people. And I went into the court and there was a panel up there and I had to testify on my friend's behalf regarding his character. And it really got hard for me because, there, I mean, it wasn't hard. I had to go in there. And, but the guy on the left here was a cop from this certain city, and he had the biggest arms I've ever seen in my life. The guy was just humongous, and I kind of thought, well, I hope he doesn't get mad at me afterward. You know, He looked like the Incredible Hulk. But they, they asked me this question, and I began to testify of my friend's character whom I've known nearly 20 years. And I went on to say that, that I believed he was a man of character. What was I doing there? I was an advocate in a legal setting bearing testimony of my friend regarding his character. 
I did that before the commission, and praise the Lord, he was reinstated to his job, and uh, he told me if he was reinstated to that job, he would take me to dinner, and so we went to Roos Chris. Have you ever heard of that? That's getting a little bit off the side, but he took me to a steak dinner, and I just said, man, I'm just glad you won, you know, and uh, it was interesting because there were three officers, and he was the only one who got his job back. And um, I said, wow. And uh, it was actually very interesting to be in there because I've known this guy. And, and I think they weren't sure what I would say. I said, well, he clearly made a mistake. And uh, I, I said, but that's not who he is, so forth. And so I was an advocate on his behalf. Now watch this. In our text here, our precious Lord is called alongside us to help, if you will, us before the judgment bar of God. God is a judge who has the authority to judge the world according to his law. And listen, by this authority, he has the right to condemn to hell every sinner who ever lived. I mean, the truth of Scripture is you and I know that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has every right to condemn every person that's ever breathed, if you will, on the face of this earth in the history of the world to hell. However, with us, Christ is our advocate. He comes before the Father to intercede for believers who have sinned. But amazingly, he is the most unusual advocate or defense attorney there ever was because he does not maintain his client's innocence, but rather he acknowledges our guilt. I mean, the truth of Scripture is we have the greatest defense attorney ever who takes up our case before the tribunal of God. In fact, using the language of the courtroom, Paul declared, do you remember in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? In the legal setting, Christ Jesus, Paul said, is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also, in Romans 8.34, intercedes for us. So he intercedes for us, we know from the Scripture, and we'll see this in a moment, on the basis of his sacrificial death, which he paid the penalty for our sin, meeting the justice that God demands for our sin. So in Jesus, what John is saying is that we have an advocate with the Father when we sin. Now, look at that phrase in 2.1. It's a little phrase, but it's, it's important. He says, we have an advocate, and then he uses this little phrasing there, with the Father. And that little word with has the root meaning of facing is the word. In other words, we have a personal advocate who has a face-to-face -face relationship with the judge. And the judge is his heavenly father and our heavenly father. 
Jesus Christ right now, literally, is in the presence of the Father pleading on behalf of sinners. You say, well, what are his credentials that he can do that? What are the credentials that he could be our advocate? Look at the text again. Stick your nose back in it in 2.1. It says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Here's the second name, Jesus Christ. Jesus, as you know, is his earthly name. Jesus, of course, represents that name, his humanity. In fact, it's in his humanity that Matthew's gospel says he will save his people from their sins. That's implied in his name and stated in his name. But you'll note here in 2.1, he's also Christ, which means the Messiah. And here, John is pointing to his deity, that he is both God and he is man, that he was born in Bethlehem as a child, but he's preexistent with the Father. He is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And so he's our advocate. He's Jesus Christ. Thirdly, would you note there in 2.1 that he is called here the righteous. Very interesting. The righteous. Do you remember back in 1.9 where it said, speaking of the character of God, if we confess our sins, there John says he is faithful and what? Just. ESV uses the word just. The word there in 1.9 sometimes is said to be faithful and righteous. Righteous, it would be stated in the NASB. It's just this, it's from the same root of that word. Just or righteous is fine. But there, God is said to be righteous, okay, or just. He's the one who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Watch this. Jesus now stands as our advocate before the righteous Father precisely because He Himself is righteous. In other words, His righteous life enables Him to be our advocate is brought out by Peter. Would you just look back a few pages to 1 Peter? Let me show you that there. Because He was righteous, He could be our advocate. If He had sinned, of course, He could not be our advocate. But I'm looking with you at 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 18. Would you look there in the scripture? There it says, for Christ, it says, having, verse 18, suffered once for our sins, here it is, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirits, the righteous for the unrighteous. It is because his sinless life was laid down for us as the means by which our forgiveness was obtained that he could righteously plead, if you will, his sacrifice before the righteous father on behalf of us, the unrighteous. And you know this, that the scriptures go on to say that he was, speaking of Christ, a lamb without blemish. I mean, he had to be sinless or he would not have been acceptable to the Father. But because he is holy, because he is innocent, because he is undefiled, because he is separate from sinners, he now stands in our place as truly the righteous one. So here's what John's saying. There is, as you turn back to 1 John now, a heresy that he denounces in 1.10. 
If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar. There is a truth declared, and the truth declared is that Jesus is our advocate. He assures us of our forgiveness in Christ. Now, the question here is, how did he accomplish that? How does he stand before the Father and become our advocate? It's in this next phrase, and I want you to get this. Look at thirdly here in this little outline, the, des- the results described. The results described. It says there in verse 2, it's a big word, but don't let it stun you. It's a biblical word. In 2.2, it says that he is the propitiation of our sins or for our sins. Watch what John does. And this is so important to assurance. Jesus is not only an advocate, as rich as that is, who intercedes for those who have sinned, but he is also, as it says there, the propitiation. I could say in the first case, he appears as an advocate in court. In this description here in 2.2, he appears as a sacrificing priest in the temple. Now, this is integral to the doctrine of assurance. It says there, and and again, we're going to always study words because the Bible was written in words. And the Bible was written to be understood. So we're not going to skip over this stuff, and we never will. You never have at Grace Church of the Valley. We never will. So it's very important that we understand what this phrase means. In fact, if you're holding an NIV, it does a different translation. It's okay. It says that he is, in 2.2, the atoning sacrifice. That's fine. But here, I think, as we hold the ESV, I like that. He's the propitiation for our sins. Very well, what does it mean? Okay, That word in 2.2, uh, propitiation, is the ideal of satisfaction. Okay, It's very important. Okay, It's the ideal of satisfaction, or we could even just use the word appeasement. Here's what John's saying, is that Christ sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice, appeasing or turning away God's wrath that was against us because of our sins. So when John says he's the propitiation for our sins, we could say that he's the satisfaction for our sins. That in his death, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. Now, our understanding, much of it, of this word propitiation is derived from the Old Testament. And I don't have to turn you there. You can look on your own. But do you remember when the priest would go into the inner court of the temple and he would there offer a sacrifice? Whenever that priest would go into the temple, the priest would actually often make two sacrifices. The first one would be for who? himself to get into the presence of God, then he would offer a second sacrifice for the sins of the people. So when a priest was in the temple, he was sacrificing the animals. In other words, a propitiation was being created. So when you think of propitiation, it could mean these things. Number one, a covering for sin. 
somehow, because we were sinful, we can't get in the presence of God. A sacrifice needed to be made. And when a sacrifice was made, number one, it was a covering for sin. Secondly, that covering was for cleansing. It was for forgiveness. You needed a covering for sin, and the reason that it came was for forgiveness. And I might just say thirdly, it was before the Lord that this sin would be covered. Let me see if I could just explain that a little bit more. Sin as we know it creates, does it not? Separation from God. Sin, our sin, makes a covering necessary. And because we've sinned, we evoke an attribute of God. We evoke His wrath. And what God's wrath is, is the reaction of His holiness to sin. So the covering then is, if you looked at it this way, the removal of God's wrath from the sin that evoked it. And so as these Old Testament sacrifices were for the purpose that one may enter into the fellowship with God. In fact, there was a way in the Old Testament to approach the throne of God. And the way that it was approached was through sacrifice, because an escape was provided. Another would die, right, in the sinner's place. The Israelite would sacrifice an animal, if you will, in order to approach God. The family itself would do this at the Passover season. Do you remember the nation would do this, and it would be represented by the high priest who annually, on the day of the atonement, when the blood offering was being sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies, as the blood, if you can picture that priest, applying uh, that blood, God's wrath would be appeased. God's wrath would be satisfied. Listen, there's no other way for me to say it but this way to you. That God is angry with sin. Is that right? I mean, he just, I, I don't, we so heighten his love, and rightly we should. But God is angry with sin. And the truth is, is that we all sin and we continually fall short of God's holy standard and his standard is absolute righteousness. And when we sin, arising out of God's holiness is an utter hatred for sin. And so God must react in his holy anger and wrath against every form of sin. In other words, God's justice must be satisfied, and sin must be punished. Now, this might seem shocking to some. God angry with sin, but the truth is, He is. I mean, there's no question in the Scripture that God's wrath rests on evil. And some people don't like this concept. In fact, theologically speaking, and you don't see it in the NASV, some have changed the word to expiation that he is the expiation for our sin. And what they mean by expiation is that, that God wipes away the guilt, if you will, is the ideal of expiation. But the word propitiation is a biblical word. But some just don't like the claim that, or the concept of appeasing an angry God. 
In other words, it likens God in some people's mind to a pagan deity that must be bribed. However, God's wrath is an attribute of his and he hates sin and because of his holiness, there must be propitiation, okay? Listen, God will not exalt one of his attributes such as mercy at the expense of another attribute such as his justice. Justice must be satisfied. You say, well, pastor, what's God's wrath? I like how John Stott said it. He said that his wrath is neither an emotion, speaking of God, nor a petulant fit of temper, because we think of a man who's angry. Got to wipe that out. God's wrath is purely righteous. He said, did Stott, it is a settled conviction of righteousness in action to destroy both sin and the sinner. Stott went on to say, though, that the glory of the gospel, listen, is that we have an advocate who pleads mercy on the ground of his own righteous action when he died the death that we deserve to die. Now, it's interesting here, and I'll get to the point here, that that same word for propitiation here in 2.2 is used in parts of the Old Testament to denote what they would call the mercy seat. If you go back to the Day of Atonement, the mercy seat was the covering, interesting, on the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember on the Ark of the Covenant, Inside that covenant was the law of God. That's the standard. And above that, that, that ark, they had built the, the cherubim angels to reflect the glory of God. So you had the glory of God's, you, if you will, perfect righteous standard that was never, you know, has never been sinned against, and then the law. And so standing in between his glory and righteousness is the law, is this covering, if you will, okay? The law of God was inside the ark, and on the day of the atonement, this is what would happen. The priest would take that sacrifice, and he would sprinkle blood on the covering, okay? He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for God's people and turn away God's wrath. Now, you certainly remember this was so important, right? That when the priest would go into the temple, what would they tie to his leg? A rope, right? And then they also tied to his robe, what? Bells, right? Because if that guy doesn't satisfy God's righteousness because the nation had sinned, the nation was toast. So if they didn't hear this guy moving, they couldn't see him because only one guy once a year, went behind the veil, went behind the Holy of Holies, and he was taking blood with him, and he took that blood, and there it was, the Ark of the Covenant. And he would have to put that blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for God's people. And so the mercy seat, best way to say it, was the place of atonement. Now, of course, the sacrifice was never able to cover all our sins for all times, right? So the next year, what would the priest do? 
He'd go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of the Atonement and offer it again. That's only on the Day of Atonement. Then they had sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, all those things throughout the year so that the people could approach God. Now, in the Old Testament, the blood applied on the mercy seat appeased God's wrath. But in the New Testament, it is the death and blood of our precious Lord that appeased God's wrath. And unlike the high priest who offered a sacrifice for himself and for the sins of the people, Jesus Christ himself is the propitiation for our sins. So listen, beloved, he is our advocate right now standing in the presence of his Father in face-to-face communion to intercede on your behalf. And because Jesus is the righteous one, this is important, we will never be denied, we will never be rejected because Jesus met the perfect standard of righteousness that God demands. And when we do sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. When we sang it this morning, Jesus bore the full brunt, listen, of God's justice that we should have borne, right? He received the full punishment that we should have received. Pierced was he for our, what? Transgressions. Crushed for our, what? iniquities. He was our substitute. You can say that God's justice towards me was satisfied. And so Christ's death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's holiness, thereby appeasing his wrath against sin. Would you just go left a few pages? Look at 1 Peter. Let me show you this. And you've seen this a hundred times. But seeing it there again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing, he says there, 118, 1 Peter, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the what? The precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without what? Blemish or spot. He was righteous. I mean, really, it's incredible here, if you can see it this way, that the one who is our advocate before the Father is himself the propitiation for our sins. In other words, Jesus is not only the sacrificial victim, but he's as well the officiating high priest. You say, well, I, I'm, I'm really glad he did that for me because God was angry with sin and that he was. But if you walk out, you'd miss 1 John 4.10. Would you look over there? I just want to show you one element, okay? Because it's in his death, Christ, that we understand the love of God. Remember this in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, what? 
the propitiation for our sins. God saw your condition, and in seeing your condition, though He's angry with sin, He gives you His best. He gives you His only begotten Son so that He would become the propitiation for our sins in His death. So, beloved, God in His fathomless love gives to you what you could never accomplish on your own, namely, Himself in the person of His Son to remove His wrath against sin. So this is why we say that He's our substitute, speaking of Jesus. That He's our mercy seat. The penalty for sin had to be paid by death. And listen, Jesus paid it for us. So listen, God, I'm back now to 1 John, has provided the means by which sinful people can be forgiven and have fellowship with God. We have been forgiven in Christ's atoning death. And beloved, the glory of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died in our place and in so doing took away God's wrath from us by punishing our sin in His Son's death. And so we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. Now listen, I say all that to say this to you, and I mean this with all my heart because I love you, okay? Here is your assurance. Listen, it is bound up in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. It is not based on your sinless perfection. Do you get it? Because you're going to come to the place where you just can't do it. You just can't love Him like you want to love Him. You can't obey Him like you want to obey Him. You can't be as faithful as you want to be faithful. And you're going to get to the point where, well, then you're not even a Christian. You're going to begin to lose your assurance because you gain it by grace, but then it's up to you. No, listen, the grounds of your assurance is the person of Christ. The grounds of your assurance is his death on your behalf. It is not your merit that grants the believer assurance of salvation. It is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Listen, never again, never again, okay, should you ever fear the retributive justice of God? Listen, Jesus Christ fully satisfied the justice of God in his death on the cross for you. At times, you will feel, as I do, the anguish of displeasing God. Your flesh may remind you of how dirty you are. Satan may incite you and remind you of all your sin and failure. But listen, this morning, remind yourself of the, that justice has been served. It's been served. Jesus Christ goes to the cross for us. But watch this. I don't want to say too much here, and we're almost done. Look at 1 John 2, 2. He says he's the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also the sins of what? The whole world. Now, you say, what does that mean? I mean, did his death propitiate, satisfy, appease the sins of every human being? 
I mean, is this, 1 John 2, 2, not only our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world? Is this universalism? Certainly not. You can see that as we move in 1 John. There's some who went away because they weren't part of the flock. This verse, in fact, is the classic text that's used to refer to an unlimited atonement. That he didn't just die for the sins of those of the elect. 1 John 2, 2, he died for the sins of the, of the whole world. When John says the sins of the whole world, he is simply saying that the salvation offered by Christ is not restricted to one class of people as the Gnostics taught. They kind of taught, remember, secret knowledge, secret handshake. I don't know about that, but they had the the secret truth, right? And what John is just saying here is that Christ died for sinners, And do you remember when John the Baptist laid eyes on Christ? He said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the what? Of the world, okay? In other words, in 1 John 4.14, it even states that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Here's how I like to say it. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to atone for all the sins of all the people of all the ages, okay? It's sufficient, but it is effective to those who call out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, those being the elect before the foundation of the world. Sufficient for all, but effective for those who are granted faith in Christ Jesus. So you say, what does assurance look like? Well, this, you've got to affirm Christ. You've got to walk in the light. You've got to confess your sin. You've got to recognize your sin. And as you do, you are assured and indeed in the fellowship with God. So let me ask you when Brooks said, we live in between fears and hopes and hang as it were between heaven and hell. Sometimes, remember he said, they hope that their state is good. At other times, they fear that their state is bad. I I think people, you do that. Some of you. Now they hope that all is well and that all shall go well with them forever. Shortly they fear that they shall perish by the hand of such a corruption or by the onslaught of such and such a temptation. And so they are like a ship in the storm, tossed here and there. Is that you? That was my father-in-law. He went to a holiness church growing up in the Midwest. And he said, Scott, every week I got saved. And then every Monday through Saturday I was unsaved. So then every Sunday I had to walk the aisle and pray. He went up forward 45 times, he said. Why? Because it's dependent on him. But listen, you will understand and I will understand assurance when you look to the Savior and his work that paid it all. You say, does this lead to easy believism? Oh, no. You got to come back next week because he's going to say, look in 2-3. He says, by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his, what? Commandments. Whoever says in verse 4, 2, 4, that I, I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. No, here's a believer. Here's assurance. You're walking in the light. You want to please the Lord. You want to live in the sphere of the light. But the more you get in the light, you just see your sin. So then rather than trying to become perfectionistic, you confess your sin and you recognize your sin. And as you confess and recognize and you're pursuing him, he's covering you in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful assurance. So then we can say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We sang this morning, I wrote it in my notes. Is this you? 
on Christ, the solid rock I, what? Stand. But the truth is, many of you are living in your own merit. And so you're, you're on shifting sand. I don't, and by the way, I, I'm saying you live on your own merit as a believer. So you're in out one week, you're in one month, out the next month. No, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand, even your own righteousness. Wesley's hymn maybe is appropriate. It's called Arise, and here's how it said, it ministered to me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. I like that. The bleeding sacrifice he, he, he says, his precious blood to plead, his blood atone for all our race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. My God is reconciled, his pardoning voice I hear. He owns me as his child, I can no longer fear. With confidence now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Listen, you put your hope in the work of Christ. You know, I was in the store this week and I saw this magazine. Did you see it? Time magazine. I thought it was interesting. The hundred, this is this week, most influential people in the world. You know who's on there? Tim Tebow, written by Jeremy Lin. Hillary Clinton is on this list. Mitt Romney is on this list. Lionel Messi, is that a soccer player? I think it's a soccer player, is on this list. George Jackson, no, I'm just kidding. He's not on that list. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a singer, I shouldn't have done that. There's a singer, there's a singer on this list by Adele. Have you heard of her? Adele, but missing is the one who can forgive you all your sin. And who is that? Jesus Christ. This should come out once a year and on the cover should be some scripture speaking of Christ that he and he alone can forgive you all your sin and take you into eternal glory where you will worship him and know ultimate joy, right? Listen, listen, Grace Church of the Valley. We should be the happiest people on the earth, right? You don't have to go to Disneyland. You can just put yourself in the book, right? I'll tell you, the most influential person ever that walked the face of the earth is Jesus Christ. We don't necessarily need an athlete. We don't necessarily need Matt Lauer. Is that the guy on one of those shows? Um, Warren Buffett. Doesn't that guy have a lot of money? How about this scripture? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and what? Forfeits his soul. You can have everything and not have Christ, and you have nothing. But if you have nothing and you have Christ, then you have what? Everything. He is our advocate. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's the one who forms the basis of our Christian assurance. So watch this. Every look you take to yourself, take 50 
to the work of Christ on the cross, and you'll end up with the right theology, okay? Let's, let's pray this morning.